So before we jump into the Word of God this weekend, I'm going to share something with you in just a minute. Let's, uh, let's bow for a word of prayer. Um, Father, thank you so much for the privilege uh, it is to be in God's house today, Lord. I think about places around the world where this is not something, it's not a thing. You can't go to church on Sunday. It's uh, forbidden. It's against the law in many large countries around this world. And uh, believers have to go underground and they have to meet in secret in fear of imprisonment or even their lives. And uh, Lord, what a privilege we have here and the freedoms we share in the United States of America. I pray, Lord, that... Uh, we don't ever take those for granted, and we continually go to you, Lord, and thank you for that. Uh, having said that, Lord, uh, we are here today now on the first day of the week to worship, and you created us to be beings that need to worship, and we need to worship you. And I pray, Lord, that we would put aside the cares of the day and the week and the month and the things that will be waiting for us when we're done here today. Lord, they're not going anywhere, but for the next uh, little time that we have here to worship today, Father, I pray that you would... Help us clear our minds and to concentrate and to focus on you. And that we would walk out of this time this morning more like Jesus than when we first came in. If we can get even a little bit close to that goal, Lord, we've been successful. And Father, we thank you for the privilege of being in your house today. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, it was, I love hearing Ed pray. You've heard me say that before from this pulpit. Uh, and uh, I did not uh, coordinate with Ed. What I was going to talk about this morning, Ned, you didn't, we didn't, I didn't make a phone call, did I, or send you a text? Uh, but I love it when I watch God put something together. That's just a, a special thing. And, uh, and as Ed was praying this morning, uh, he prayed about uh, us getting exposed to the greatness of God and how maybe if we got exposed to the greatness of God a little bit more, we'd put our coveting of this world aside. And that's dead center what we're going to talk about this morning. And I love it when God uh, puts all those things together. So uh, grateful to be part of that and, uh, and to see what God's going to do this morning. Uh, the year was 1911, and a young cartoon artist named Arthur Pop Mammond was doing quite well for himself. He was making $125 a week. Now we look back at that and we say, $125 a week, he was doing well. Well, the year was 1911. And $125 a week was a lot of money in those days. And he was living the life. He was a young man, 23 years old, had money in his pockets, and he was doing quite well. He set up shop in Cedarhurst, Long Island, living alongside the rather well-to-do class of his day. He hired a full-time house servant and began to throw lavish parties. He entertained in a grand manner or at least as grand as he could on $125 a week. There's always limitations, right? But it wasn't long until the bills began to pile up and the debt collectors started knocking at the door. So Pop sold his house, he paid off his debts, and he moved to, in his words, a cheap apartment in New York City. I don't think there's any more cheap apartments in New York City. But in 1911, apparently there were. The Cedarhurst experience was a rude awakening for Pop, but he saw a certain humor in the whole thing. After all, he was a cartoon artist. His endeavor to keep up with the well-to-do class of Cedarhurst sparked a creative idea in his young mind. He decided it might make a good comic strip. So he sat down and he drew out six comic strips, and he titled them, and you know what's coming next, 
keeping up with the Smiths. However, he felt something was wrong with the title. Somehow something was just off. It was eluding him. He didn't know what was wrong with keeping up with the Smiths, but it just didn't resonate the way he wanted it to. And so before he approached any of the large newspapers to try to sell his Keeping Up with the Smiths comic strip, he changed the Smith to Jones. And the rest is history. Keeping Up with the Joneses was picked up by several large newspapers around the country. The comic strip ran for the next 28 years. It was translated into 10 different languages and rather quickly became part of our American lexicon. Today, more than 100 years later, we still refer to envy and coveting as trying to keep up with the Joneses. This morning, we're going to talk about coveting and keeping up with the Joneses. The sin of envy and coveting are as old as mankind itself. It's my contention that the very first sin in the garden was the sin of coveting. There's lots of people that will argue about that. They'll say it was pride, but pride and coveting, it's two edges of two sides of the same coin. It's hard to separate the two things where as you are proud about something, you begin to covet it. Wanting that which is not yours is coveting. That which belongs to someone else is coveting. That which is forbidden. You're simply told you can't have it. All of those things are wrapped up in the sin of coveting. Turn in your Bibles with me this morning, please, to Psalm chapter 73. Psalm 73. The title of this morning's message is Coveting Can Cause Catastrophic Consequences. Now, you might think, Steve, you've over-alliterated the message this morning. And some of you are having that thought because you just laughed at me. I, I kind of almost, in a sense, wrote this message a long time ago. I wrote this years ago when I was going to get my doctorate. And one of the classes was a preaching class. And I was already a pastor in, in preaching, uh, but you had to take a, a class on how to write a sermon, right? And uh, so one of the things that the, the uh, professor said that was teaching the class is he said, by all means, do not over-alliterate a passage. Not everything has to start with the same letter or rhyme. And so I think a little tongue-in-cheek, I came up with the title for this message, Coveting Can Cause Catastrophic Consequences. Now, if that bothers you, you can turn one of my C words into a K word. If you want to spell cause or coveting with a K, that's up to you. Maybe it makes you feel better at the end of the day. Psalm 73 is an interesting psalm because many times, Psalm 73, we bring the wrong question to this psalm. We bring a question. It's a great question. It just doesn't fit here. And if you bring the wrong question, many times you'll get an answer. The question we bring to Psalm 73 is, why do good things happen to bad people? Or the other side of it is, why do bad things happen to good people? And if you bring that question to this text, you'll get an answer. The problem is it's not the answer that was intended from the writings of Asaph who wrote this psalm. Uh, Many passages in the scripture are like that. Uh, You've heard me talk about Proverbs 31 before. Uh, Proverbs 31 is a great passage, but we bring the wrong question to it. If you bring the question, what does the ideal woman look like to to Proverbs 31? You will get an answer. You'll get an answer in Proverbs 31. It just isn't the answer that was intended by the writer of Proverbs 31. Because the question was not, what does the ideal woman look like? The question is really wrapped up in verse 10. Who can find a virtuous woman? And that word find means to create. 
And so Proverbs 31, ladies, you're going to cheer about this. It's not written to women about becoming the ideal woman. It's written to men about how to create an environment for that woman to thrive. Oh, really? Maybe you should preach on Proverbs 31 today, some other time. That's not the text today, some other time. But if that piques your your, uh, interest, we'll do it again sometime in the future. Psalm 73 is similar. It's one of those ones where we bring the wrong question to a great text. Asaph is laying himself bare here. He is being transparent. I love this guy. Uh, there are, there are uh, portions of Scripture that are called didactic wisdom literature. The Proverbs are all didactic wisdom literature. Some of the Psalms are didactic. Didactic meaning teaching. Psalm 49 is a wisdom psalm. Psalm 73 is a wisdom psalm. Psalm. It follows the same kind of uh, pace and, 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 I guess, layout. And what I love about uh, Asaph here is he is a guy who's willing to lay himself out and be transparent in front of us and share with us what he's wrestling with. Very human and very approachable. Now, coveting can cause catastrophic consequences, and Asaph is the writer here. Who was Asaph? Asaph was the lead musician for King David. He was a very important person. He was a seer, S-E-E-R, a a type of prophet, but not not a prophet in the sense of like an Elijah or a Jonah. He was a different type of prophet, probably a small p prophet if you want to look at it that way. You would think of this fellow as the secretary of music for King David. He was a very important person. You would roll out the red carpet for Asaph. And so he, he he lived in that world. And in that world, he's looking at other people. He's looking at the worldly around him, and he's saying, I'm beginning to envy what they have. He's beginning to envy what they have. Now, a good definition of coveting is this, and it was delivered to me by my six-year-old grandson just a week ago. He said this to us out loud. He says, I've wanted that my whole life ever since I saw it. And for him, that was eight minutes ago. I've won- How many times have you said in your heart, I've wanted that my whole life, ever since I saw it, and you just saw it? Well, the transparency of a grandchild is really wonderful because it's very revealing. Asaph introduces us to a string of events that almost lead him to catastrophic consequences. What are those string of events? Well, it starts in verses 1 through 3 here of Psalm 73. The first consequence of coveting is confusion. It's confusion. Let me read the first three verses and it gets us set up here. Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. And he's about to tell you that he's not of a clean heart. He's about to tell you he's about to stumble. But as for me, boy, those are great words. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious at the foolish. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And folks, isn't that true today? Don't we look at the world around us and we think, how are they doing so well? And, and, and honestly, the social media age that we live in hasn't helped with this. You look back at your old friends from high school on Facebook and they're all living on the Chesapeake Bay and they send you a picture every night they posted of the sun setting on their beautiful home and then they show you they just got their pool open for the season and it's a glorious thing and you think, I wish I had a pool. I wish I had a sunset to look at. 
I wish I, how are they doing so well? And there's never a mention of God in their lives at all. And it seems as though the wicked are prospering. Well, this is nothing new. They've been prospering for a long time. And Asaph is caught up in it now. And he's being transparent with us as he's going, I'm scratching my head and I'm thinking, am I doing something wrong here? Because I don't seem to be getting ahead. Our character health ministry, the, Megan and I have been doing this ministry now for about a dozen years. And, uh, you, you know, we do okay at it. Um, we've been to a lot of places and we've done a lot of really wonderful things, but there's that ambitious part of you that wants it to be more or bigger. And then you begin to look at other ministries and you go, how can you be envious of other ministries? Well, it's easy. You can be envious of anything. It, it, you don't have to be envious of a thing or a possession, like a nice car or a nice house. You can certainly be envious of those things, but you can be envious of somebody else's good reputation. <laughs> the ease that their life seems to appear to be in. You can be envious of just about anything. And it's easy for us even as ministers to become easy, you know, envious of, of somebody else's thing. And, and the real hurt comes when my kids come over and they show me a TikTok video. They go, hey, Dad, watch this 18-second TikTok video. And it's some kid throwing a ping-pong ball into a thing and it ends up in a deal and they, hey, everybody cheers, right? And it's 18 seconds of nonsense, just foolishness. And then my kids say, and that guy that made that video has 10 million followers. And he just bought a mansion and a yacht at age 18. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm doing something wrong. I've been working my fingers to the bone for this ministry to put God's word forward and get it out to American people. And, and we're making little incremental steps here and there, but I don't have 10 million followers. 18 seconds later, I could. It's easy to get wrapped up and start thinking, maybe I'm doing something wrong get distracted so easily. Confusion begins to set in. In those first three verses, I just appreciate Asaph's heart. But I call this now the incremental creeps, right? Because the stuff doesn't set in immediately. The, the confusion doesn't take you by surprise all of a sudden. It happens gradually over a period of time. In my other job as an airline pilot, I can tell you that no airplane crash or no airplane catastrophe happened as a result of just one event. It was a series of things that were all kind of a chain of events, all linked together, one little error of judgment after another, and nobody did anything to interrupt or break that chain of events, and then there was a catastrophic consequence. Confusion set in at some point, and, and, and bad things happened. It's the incremental creeps. We allow our lives to look at and envy others, but we do it in short little baby steps, one thing at a time. We let one little root of bitterness come in and another and then another and pretty soon you're so far off track you don't even remember where you started. All you know is that you're in the fog and you're confused and you're beginning to doubt God and you're beginning to doubt yourself and you're beginning to doubt the church. You're beginning to doubt the word of God. Why? Because you've allowed the confusion to set in and the heart of it is a heart of coveting and envy. Look at what happens in verses 4 through 12. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compassed them, 
after about as a chain, violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. These are vile people. He's looking at it going, there's nothing godly about them. They speak badly about God and others, and they're violent people, and yet they're prospering. Therefore, in verse 10, therefore his people return hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. They do, according to Asaph, he goes, they do everything wrong, and then their coffers are full. I don't understand that. Boy, he's, he's, he's lost in this, right? It's so easy to get lost in this. Verse 11, And they say, How doth God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? They even sarcastically scoff at God. Is there really a God? Does God really care? I'm doing well, and I don't have anything to do with God. Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. And then in verse 13 and 14, Asaph sits down and he writes out the invitations to the pity party, right? The only problem with sending invitations out to a pity party is that nobody shows up. It's just you at the pity party. But it helps because you can have more pity on yourself because nobody showed up to your party. So here's Asaph in verse 13. He says, Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. I've done this stuff my whole life. I've worked really hard, and I guess it was a waste of time is what he's saying. And in verse 14, for all the day long have I plagued and chastened every morning. Every morning I got up, and I tried to do things right, and I'm not getting ahead. And everywhere I look, everybody else who's doing everything wrong is getting ahead. He's confused. The incremental creeps have taken him over. Coveting leads to self-doubt, self-pity, confusion, and potential catastrophe. Coveting can cause catastrophic consequences. Now, the second consequence of coveting is this. It robs us of an eternal perspective. It robs us of an eternal perspective. It's so easy for us to get lost in uh, in, in the things that we think we ought to have, and we lose the big picture. We ought to have an eternal perspective, but so many of us don't. We get lost in the, in the day-to-day stuff, the strife of talk radio, and the, the criticism of the day, and the politics of the day, and everything's going wrong, and, and we, we get wrapped around the axle about those things, and we lose sight of the big picture. Folks, we're bound for heaven, and there's nothing in this universe that can separate us from the love of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Am I right about that? If there's anybody that ought to have a smile on their face, it's us. Because I read the end of the book and we went, right? I know where I'm going. And there's nothing in this universe that God will allow to separate me from that. And that's a wonderful thing indeed. And so with that in mind, I need to have a bigger picture. An eternal perspective. All of us need to. It will help lift the fog of confusion. Now I want to read verses 15 through 20. I'm going to skip verse 17 on purpose. We're going to come back to it. Verse 15 says this, If I say, I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. He's, he's now turning a corner, Asaph. He's saying, when I finally got it, I, did, I almost didn't want to tell anybody because I was embarrassed. It was too painful to, <laughs> to, to, to share 
my vulnerabilities here, but uh, thankfully he did. Skip verse 17, we'll come back to that. Verse 18, surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation? As in a moment, they are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. He's now talking about the people he envied, the people he was coveting. And he said, you know what? I get it now. I understand. I know what happens to them. They, their feet are set on a slippery place. And there's nothing worse than that feeling of slipping. You've lost control. You're about to go down. I have this recurring dream. And I, I, I don't know where I am, but I'm on a slope and I'm trying. But it's like grease and I can't get any traction. And I'm sliding down and there's something below me that is going to destroy me. And I don't even know what it is because I don't want to turn around and look at it, but I can hear it. And it's a terrible, desperate dream. I'll wake up and I'm like sweating in the middle of the night. I'm like, whoa, why do I have that dream? And it's, it's a terrible feeling. I understand what Asaph is talking about here. That slipping is a, is a desperate, out-of-control feeling. It's not one that you want to have, and it's not one that believers ought to have. He talked about that back in verse 2. He said, my foot almost slipped. And the two are kind of connected. We'll, we'll unwrap more on that in just a minute. Asaph says, had I continued to allow those incremental creeps, had the chain of events not been broken, I would have lost the big picture. I would have lost my eternal perspective. But as he reminds himself that he needs to have an eternal perspective, it begins to break that chain of events that was leading to him despairing. That slipping in verse 18 was, was not a slipping that he was supposed to experience, but because of the confusion he allowed in his life through the coveting and envy, he began to feel uncertain about the future, and he began that desperate feeling of peril. Coveting can cause catastrophic consequences. Confusion is just one of them. Loss of eternal perspective is another one. But the third and final one this morning is this. Coveting can cause catastrophic consequences because it clouds God's continual presence with us. It clouds God's continual presence with us. Take a look at now verse 21 through 24. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I and ignorant, I was as a beast before thee. I love the description here of this. He said, I was so out of it, I, I, I so doubted God that I was acting like a beast, almost to the point where God had to kind of beat me to, to get my attention, you know. And I picture a, a, a dog that's out of control that, that you have to kind of roll up a newspaper and whack it. That, that's kind of where he is now, and he's, he's being transparent with us about it. So foolish was I. What a great uh, confession. I was, a, I was as a beast before thee. Verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. I love that. And in verse 24, he says, Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterwards receive me to glory. The word glory here is not talking about ultimate glory as stepping into heaven. Every time you see glory in the Old Testament, it was talking about actual honor. It was being honored. I'll, Lord, you're going to honor me at some point for this position, for sticking with it for having the eternal perspective, for not caving in to the, the confusion that I was experiencing, to, to breaking that chain of events of coveting 
everything around me. Once that chain got broken, Lord, you're going to bring honor to me at some point. I know that. So that type of glory is one that he is expecting to receive from God. The illustration I like with this one is this. Years ago, I was on I-4 coming from Tampa to Orlando. Anybody ever travel that route? Okay, so it's a, it's a major highway, um, but it's also known for, it gets these fog events on I-4, and I wasn't really aware of that. It was just an early morning. I had spoken at an event in Tampa, and uh, I was heading back to Orlando to catch a flight, and I'm driving along, and all of a sudden, it's getting foggy, and it's getting real foggy, and it's real foggy. Like, you're slowing down to 10 miles an hour. You can just see the two red lights ahead of you. And you look down, and I'm only going 10 miles an hour. And that's an that's a uneasy feeling. And it's getting even worse now. We're getting into the thicker fog, and, and I'm thinking, I don't know if the guy behind me is going 10 miles an hour. I've, I think I better pull over. And I don't normally pull over. <laughs> I've, I've driven through some bad rainstorms and not pulled over. But this fog was so bad, I thought, I need to pull over. So I'm looking for the side of the road, and you finally see a little yellow line over there, and you, you kind of go on the other side of it, and I'm looking for the guardrail because I don't know how far away it is. And I finally saw it just outside the car, and I thought, okay, I need to stop right here. And now you're thinking, because you're hearing, you're hearing cars pass you. Some cars are passing you at 10 miles an hour, but some are going a lot faster. And I'm thinking, I... I probably need to get out of this car because I don't know if somebody's going to whack into the back of me or not. It's that, it's that very uncertain feeling. And so I got out of the car real quick and I walked over and, and you could see the front of the car, but that's all the farther you could see. And I kind of felt around the front of the car and there, there I, I found the guardrail and the guardrail was over here and I thought, I need to get on the other side of that guardrail. <laughs> so there I am, you know, straddling the guardrail, <laughs> you know, getting over and I get on the other side of the guardrail and I'm standing in, you know, some mud and everything. But you know what? I, as soon as I got on the other side of that guardrail, I felt better. Felt like I was protected. I understand what Asaph's talking about here. You know, when God's holding your hand, you feel good. You feel protected. You feel like you're okay. And, and at those times in life where you're confused, and those times in life where the fog has set in, and, and you, you hard, can hardly see the hand in front of your face because you're, you're coveting or you're envying what, what the world has around you and what you don't have, and, and you're throwing that little pity party and self-doubt sets in. Hold on to the Lord's hand. That's the wrong time to let go. Because you let go then, and the fog's going to get even worse. And then you're going to flail around for where is he? He's right there. And there's that reassurance. He's, he's the other side of the guardrail. Don't move, Steve. You'll be okay as long as you hold on to my hand. And so Asaph is sharing that with us. Contrast the clear reality of walking hand in hand with God with that of being lost in confusion in the fog. Which would you prefer? It kind of speaks for itself, doesn't it? So when did the confusion clear for Asaph? I mean, where did the eternal perspective return? What caused the cloud to lift in his life? What broke that chain of events? You can follow any one of my illustrations here. Right? When did all of this stuff come together? How did Asaph avoid a catastrophe of faith in his life? Well, let's go back to verse 17. Verse 17 in the Hebrew language is a, called a hinge or it's a pivot. It's a, there's an idiom used here that makes it stand out like a sore thumb. So that it just kind of jumps off the page. And it's about to tell you that something dramatic, 180 degrees out of phase, is about to take place. 
There's all sorts of these in the Old Testament, and this is one of them. And he says this, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. It wasn't until he entered into the sanctuary of God, he held on tight, that he understood their end. And at that moment, when he understood what was really going to happen to the Joneses, to the people who seem to be doing so well, that have 10 million clicks on every video, to the people who can't, don't have enough, <laughs> they can't write checks big enough to buy the things that they want, all of that stuff that we kind of envy and look at. And, you know what? He knows what their end is. Because without Jesus Christ, they've got a godless eternity ahead of them. They have much bigger problems ahead. No amount of clicks on your YouTube channel is going to get you out of a godless eternity. But it's easy to envy that, isn't it? It's easy to look at those people and go, I wish I had what they had. But don't get wrapped up in that because it just brings a cloud of confusion. So he averted a catastrophe of faith. It came about when he entered the sanctuary of God. Then he perceived their end and God's presence. Both things happened at the same time. The word sanctuary in the Hebrew language is the word mikdash. It's M-I-Q-D-A-S-H for those of you who like to look up things afterwards. Mikdash means a consecrated place, a set-apart place, a sacred uh, area, a place of refuge, uh, a safe place, a place that's like a fortress. And it's wonderful to be in the sanctuary of God. It's a place where you can be on the other side of the guardrail. And now as you hear the cars whizzing by in the fog, you know, I'm safe. It's that kind of place. But I love the Hebrew language and the Greek language because unlike English, English is kind of a one-dimensional language. Many of these ancient languages are very multifaceted. And so the words now mean a whole lot more than just what you read in English. Sanctuary, you'd think, okay, it's a safe place. Great, good, let's go on. No, no, it's got three layers to it. And unwrapping these three layers really helps us with what the true meaning of the word. Sanctuary in God, or sanctuary of God here, that expression means physical sanctuary, first and foremost. Physical sanctuary. It's actually talking about, like, church attendance. Being together in fellowship with like-minded believers. And that's what fellowship is, like-minded believers. You can be with other believers but not be like-minded and you're not going to have fellowship. It's the type of fellowship that you experience when you run into a, a, a saved friend that you haven't seen for 10 years and you pick up right where you left off. You know what I'm talking about? You have friends like that in your life. It's, it's just like, it, it's like no time has passed at all. We, we, we get to hug each other. Hey, how have you been? And immediately we all start talking about the Lord. And it's like we just picked up right where we left off. And that's the commonality of the Holy Spirit in your relationships. Physical the, the physical attendance, the physical sanctuary is hugely important. It's, it's very encouraging to me to see how many people now have returned to church because the pandemic was hard on this part of sanctuary of God. For, for a season, we had to split up. And some of us, it was difficult to come back. And I'm here today to tell you, you know, there, there may be reasons why you're still staying at home. But if you're staying at home watching this on Zoom because, well, it's just more convenient or I, I just kind of like being in my pajamas while I watch a church service, but you're still going to work, you're still going to the grocery store, you're still going out, and it's time to come back. It's time to come back. We need you here. 
we need you as much as you need us. That physical sanctuary is not something that, that we can do without. Hebrews 10.25 says, don't forsake fellowshipping together, right? It's important that we do that. That's the first aspect of the sanctuary of God. The second is the emotional sanctuary. The emotional sanctuary. God's place in our hearts. It's important that when we go out of the four walls of this building, we understand that we take God with us. And he has an emotional place in our heart. He made us emotional characters and creatures. And we need that stability in our lives. That's what it builds in our lives. It builds a stable foundation in Jesus Christ. So we've got to take God with us. We have to understand that he brings emotional stability and steadiness into our lives. That sanctuary is a safe place for us. And the third aspect now of sanctuary is a spiritual sanctuary. A spiritual sanctuary means God's influence in our lives. It's not just a warm, fuzzy feeling like the emotional part. That's okay to have that feeling and feel reassured that you're holding on to God's hand. It's another thing to follow his lead. You can enjoy holding on to the Savior's hand, and then as soon as he starts to lead you, you start pulling back. And the two of you are squeezing real hard and pulling in different directions. And the Lord's going, I want to take you here. He's not going to drag you anywhere. He's not going to force you to go any place you don't want to go. Something about holding your father's hand means you follow his lead. And I can't tell you how many times when uh, my kids were little and we'd go to cross the road or something and I'd say, grab, I'd do it like this. I'd reach my hand out, right? You dads all do it. You moms all do it. You instinctively reach your hand out. And what do you expect at that moment? that child's going to reach up and grab your hand. So if they don't, you do one of those, right? And then they, they do like that. Well, sometimes, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they do this, right? Don't they? And now what do you got to do? You got to reach over and you got to grab that hand and you got to pull it. Why? Because there's danger that lays ahead that they don't know about. You're older and wiser and more mature. You see the danger that lay ahead. You're the wise man of the proverb that see the danger that lay ahead and you don't want them to fall into it. So sometimes forcefully you have to take their hand. But what you really would love, and this is the ideal situation, is you reach out your hand, they grab your hand, and then they follow your lead. They don't constantly do like this, pulling back. The incremental creeps get us into that place where we start pulling back, pulling back, and then the fog sets in. And now we're even more scared. And there's even more peril. And what do we do? Asaph would say, run for the sanctuary of God. Stop fighting them, right? Stop coveting what your neighbor has. That's great for them. I'm glad they've got it. But what does that have to do with me? Stop trying to keep up with the Joneses. And start trying to keep up with God. Because he's going to lead you in the right place. So he will influence our lives now into action. It's not just a warm fuzzy, but it's actual. He'll guide our steps and take us to a place that he wants us to go according to the spiritual giftedness and and, and the enabling in our lives. All of that is wonderful. All that's wrapped up in this idea of sanctuary as we find it here at the end of Psalm 73. When we find sanctuary in God, we can expect what takes place in verses 25 through 28. So read with me along at the end here. Whom have I in heaven but thee? Isn't that a great conclusion? I mean, at the end of it all, Asaph started out with, my feet were slipping, I was really in doubt, I envied everybody around me because they were doing well and I wasn't. And at the end of it, he says, whom do I have in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, 
Thou that are far from thee shall perish. See, he knows what's going to happen to them. He doesn't want to be part of that. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. And that's exactly what Asaph does in Psalm 73. He declares all the works of God in his life. But he does it in a beautifully transparent way that we can gain some wisdom and direction for our lives. Confusion to clear, the perspective to return, the clouds to clear, and have our feet firmly stand on solid ground. We need to follow the example of Asaph here and run to the sanctuary of God. See, coveting can cause catastrophic consequences until we find sanctuary in God. So, Mr. and Mrs. Jones... Where do you find your sanctuary today? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of this psalm. I hope someday, Lord, I get to meet Asaph. And uh, I'd love to sit down with him for about a thousand years and just kind of talk about music and talk about writing this psalm and the wisdom and the insight. But I'm grateful, Lord, that for... Uh, in eternity, in your word, we have this beautiful psalm. So we don't despair about why do bad things happen to good people or good things happen to bad people, Lord. That's another question for another day. The real question today, Lord, is do we run to you as a sanctuary? Do we physically come to your house? Do we allow you to have emotional sanctuary in our lives and Ultimately, Lord, spiritual sanctuary as we follow you and don't fight you. Do we put our hand in your hand and allow you to lead? Then and only then, Lord, finding that sanctuary in God, will the fog lift, will the confusion go away, and the incremental creeps stop ruling our lives. So, Lord, I, I, I think of keeping up with the Joneses in a new way today. Um, every time I hear that expression, Lord, I'm going to think about Asaph in Psalm 73. And I'm going to think to myself, you know, coveting can cause catastrophic consequences, but Lord, through your grace and your leading, through your sanctuary, we can break that chain of events and have the blessed life, Lord, that you want us to have.